China's influence is rising, but how is it changing the countries around it? From Radio Free Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China and Eurasia, a podcast about how Beijing is changing the balance of power. Is China helping Russia get around sanctions? China has supported the Kremlin and carefully navigated the Western sanctions slapped on Moscow nearly one year ago after it invaded Ukraine. But while many Chinese firms have moved away from the Russian market, there's also a growing wealth of evidence that Beijing is still able to extend an economic lifeline to Russia. Beijing, along with other Asian countries, have continued to buy up discounted Russian oil. China has accelerated doing business with Russia in rubles or Chinese renminbi to avoid using the Russian financial system also. There's also growing signs that ru- from Russian's cu- Russian customs data that shows it's importing a wide array of dual-use technologies, products that have both commercial and military applications, and the bulk of which are coming from Chinese state-owned defense companies that could be used to help Russia's war effort. All of this raises the question, just how far is China willing to go in helping Russia, and does Beijing have the tools to defang Western sanctions? Welcome back to Talking China and Eurasia. I'm Reid Standish, and I'm joining you live from Radio Free Europe studios in Prague. On today's episode, I'm joined by Agathe Demare, Global Forecasting Director at the Economist Intelligence Unit and author of the new book, Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against U.S. Interests. We'll be exploring how China is dealing with Western sanctions against Russia, where Beijing decides to draw the line for its support, and also trying to dis- understand what this tells us about where Beijing and Moscow's relationship might be heading and how China is looking to use its growing economic power in the future. Agathe, Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. And hello, everyone. Uh, so, you know, we're speaking now. It's February 2023, which is just a few days past the one anniversary of Putin and Xi declaring a no limits partnership between their two countries. And it's also just a few weeks before the one year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I'm hoping we can begin by explaining to listeners how China has navigated sanctions on Russia and the war in Ukraine and what that might tell us about Beijing's relationship with Moscow. Well, essentially, I would say that the relationship between Beijing and Moscow is extremely unbalanced. And I would say that China really has the upper hand in its relationship with Russia. On the one hand, um, Russia doesn't really have any other alternative than China, you know, to have some economic and financial support and also to find some new export routes to export hydrocarbons. So that's the situation from the Russian perspective. On the other hand, China is, of course, happy to get discounted oil and gas from Russia, but it will also make sure that it doesn't become over-reliant on Russia. So I would say that really Beijing has the upper hand, and I think that's something that we'll probably keep in mind during our entire conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly the the overriding theme here, right? So, I mean, but but building off of that, you know, um, are would you say that sanctions on Russia are working? I mean, when these were unveiled, uh, you know, nearly a year ago after the invasion, you know, these are seen as the most you know comprehensive and hard hitting sanctions package ever conceived. Um, but you know, a year in. Are they having an effect? And is there are there signs that China is helping lessen their impact on Russia? Definitely sanctions on Russia are working. I think that we're hearing a lot of people claim that sanctions effectiveness is very low, but I would actually argue that sanctions on Russia are definitely working based on, well, everything that we're seeing happening in Russia. But the problem is with sanctions against Russia 
it's that their objectives, the goals of sanctions, hadn't been defined very clearly. And so it's very easy when sanctions goals aren't defined very clearly to have a lot of conspiracy theories or a lot of confusion around the effectiveness of sanctions. I would say there are two main goals in the short to medium term. The first goal was to send a diplomatic message to both Russia and Ukraine, of course, unity and solidarity with Ukraine, and also a message of resolve and transatlantic unity to Russia. So I think from that perspective, I would say mission accomplished. And then the second goal, it is to make it harder for Russia to wage war against Ukraine. I don't think it's realistic to expect an economic collapse of Russia. That would be very difficult. Um, it's, it's the ninth largest economy in the world. That also probably wouldn't be very good news for Western countries because Russia is such a huge economy, so it would have big global ripple effects. It's also not about regime change because we know that sanctions never work to do regime change. And it's probably not a magic tool. We know that sanctions can't be a magic bullet that will change Putin's calculus from one day to another. Now, the real point of sanctions is to make it harder for Russia to wage war against Ukraine economically, financially, and technologically. And the Russian economy was in a recession last year in 2022. We will actually get December GDP data in about one hour. Um, but we can expect a contraction of about three or four percent. That is very significant. And this year, well, the consensus among forecasters is that the Russian economy will contract again. The consensus is minus 2.8%. So, you know, at some point, Russia has reserves, of course, financial reserves, but at some point it will need to make choices to preserve social stability that comes at a cost, finance war that is very expensive, and the reserves of the Russian government will slowly, slowly, um, well, become less expansive. So, well, yes, sanctions are working from the economic and financial perspective, but it will be a long-term endeavor. And no to your question about China. Well, of course, we're seeing an increase from Russia of hydrocarbon exports um, to China. But at the same time, I would actually say that it is important. It is huge. We're seeing a, about a 40% rise in, in Russian exports to China. But China isn't buying everything from Russia at the same time. We're seeing that actually exports in level terms, they reached a plateau around September, October. And it goes back to my earlier point about the fact that China will be very careful not to become over-dependent on Russian energy. And I would actually expect in 2023, that China's imports of energy from Russia won't go much higher precisely because of this reason. Of course, I could be completely wrong, but I think this is something that we've seen in the past, that China is very careful, for instance, not to become over-reliant on Saudi oil. It has a cap at about 2 million barrels per day of imports from each oil exporting countries. And I would suspect that it will make sure that it doesn't go over that cap because Russia has really shown that it is not a reliable energy supplier. Right. And, and I guess that gets back into, you know, this unbalance that you talked about, um, you know, in the, your answer to my first question. Um, all right, this is a reminder to anyone listening live. If you have a question, you can raise your hand and um, we can give you the floor and we're happy to engage with you. Um, Agaf, I want to talk a little bit about your book. You know, obviously, uh, a big part of it is right there in the title. Um, it's about how sanctions uh, are losing power and how their overuse can lead to unintended consequences. Uh, I, I know in conversations that you and I have had in the past, you've said that sanctions are 
something like an antibiotic that's been overprescribed by the West. And now we're seeing what happens when that immunity has been built up. Uh, and, and I think, you know, China is a big part of, of that immune response. Um, and I think when if we look at, you know, its relationship with Russia, even before the invasion of Ukraine, there was lots of chatter from Chinese scholars and policymakers about things like a, a state-led digital currency, developing a, a currency union with Moscow, and increasingly using Chinese renminbi for, for major transactions and deals as part of this kind of wider effort to move away from relying on the U.S. dollar. So, I mean, I've, I've heard of these for many years. You know, they, they pop up here and there in various statements and, you know, we see some in, uh, initiative get signed. But I mean, how, how substantial are these? You know, are, are they effective now and, and how important could they be in the future? I really like the way you phrased the question, because I think there has been a lot of skepticism about the fact that these alternative financial systems, and I will say a bit more about them in a few seconds, there's been a lot of skepticism that they could work or that they could help countries to circumvent sanctions. As you say, the parallel that I make is that sanctions are really a bit like antibiotics. Essentially, the sanctions are very important to Western diplomacies. We're seeing this at the moment with Russia, of course. And why are sanctions so important? Well, because they fill in the void between, on the one hand, empty diplomatic declarations that are not going to have any impact on Moscow, Beijing, Tehran, um, or Pyongyang. And on the other hand, the other extreme of the political and diplomatic spectrum, well, it's military intervention, deadly, unpopular, costly. So not really a great option, usually. And sanctions fall right in the middle. And that's why they're so popular. Well, they have other advantages that we can discuss. They're very cheap for governments also to implement. But they're really, really crucial for Western diplomacies. But the problem is, just like antibiotics, if we overuse sanctions, and that's the point of my book, well, we have side effects and we have resistance. So I think it's important to remember that sanctions work these days by targeting financial channels. That is to say, it is up to banks to make sure that all of the transactions that they process comply with sanctions. It is banks that actually implement sanctions in practice. And so unsurprisingly, the sanctions resistance movement is taking place in the financial sphere and China is actually really leading the way. The first tool that countries can use to actually vaccinate themselves against sanctions, I prefer using the word vaccinate because it's, it's not sanctions or convention, it's really vaccination, preemptive vaccination. The first tool is to stop using the US dollar because of course, well, US sanctions in particular target all transactions made using US dollars. And I think there has been something very interesting and under-noticed between Russia and China um, since 2020. Both countries, they do bilateral trade with each other using mostly Russian rubles and Chinese renminbi. And this is, to me, very interesting. The decision to do that was taken at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit of early 2020. And really, you know, the goal, the stated goal was to vaccinate these economies against U.S. sanctions. Another example of de-dollarization is actually also a Russian example. We're seeing that only half of the reserves of the Russian central bank were frozen. Why is that? Well, because the remaining half, which is about 300 billion US dollars, well, equivalent US dollars, was denominated in non-Western currencies, such as the Chinese renminbi. And actually, we're seeing the Russian central bank 
gradually and actually really drastically increase its holdings in Chinese renminbi. So this is really happening. And reserves that are not in Western currencies, you know, they can't be frozen by Western countries. So de-dollarization is the first step. The second step, and China really leads the way, is alternatives to SWIFT. So what is SWIFT? It's a global Rolodex connecting all banks with each other to route financial transfers. And China, you know, really took note in 2012, and Russia also, when Western countries disconnected Iran from the SWIFT network. I think this was really, really an important moment for countries that are at odds with the U.S., they took good notes and they started to develop the wrong mechanism that could be an alternative to SWIFT. The idea is not for them to have the biggest mechanism, not at all. But they want to have a plan B, a backup, in case they're cut off from SWIFT. And China really leads the way. It has a system called SIPS that is 100 times smaller than SWIFT, the standard Western one, but it works, you know, and it connects about 1,300 banks around the world, including American and European ones. And of course, Russian sanctioned bank use this system. And so China here has a twofold strategy, I would say. The first part of the strategy is preemptive and defensive against US sanctions. And the second part is offensive because, you know, China, which is today the second largest economy in the world, but it will probably become the world's largest economy by 2040, it could one day say, well, if you want to do business with us, you need to use SIPs. And so it is acquiring the ability to cut off entire countries and entire companies from the Chinese market. So that's the second alternative. Alternatives to SWIFT and China really leads the way. And of course, Russia is using SIPs. And finally, the third, well, thing to circumvent sanctions or vaccinate themselves against sanctions. You've mentioned it at central bank digital currencies. And again, China really leads the way. About 300 million Chinese people are using a digital yuan that is issued by the Chinese central bank that is stored on their mobile phones, on the wallets of their mobile phones. And of course, sanctions would have no bite against this currency. And this currency comes with added benefits, surveillance capabilities for the Chinese state. So finally, one more word to answer your question about the fact that there's been skepticism that this could all dent the effectiveness of US sanctions. Well, I would say in isolation, none of this mechanism could gradually decrease the effectiveness of US sanctions, but all of them taken together give a rogue country some alternatives to do business. And that is why, in my view, it will mean that the effectiveness of financial sanctions could decrease in the coming decades. It won't be from one day to another. It won't happen tomorrow. But that's the risk to me in the coming decades. I think that's an excellent explanation I got. Um, but I mean, to, to, to kind of build off or, or follow up, you know, on your metaphor about this being, uh, you know, part of vaccines or, or using the analogy of a vaccine. I mean, so, you know, the, these tools that the Chinese are coming up with, I mean, is this, you know, is this three shots of Pfizer or is this like a, a double dose of Sinopharm? Well, um, I like the way you phrase the question because three doses of Chinese vaccines are equivalent to three doses of mRNA vaccines. Um, it's not clear yet, actually. It's not clear yet. But I think if we take a look at the three tools one by one, 
Desolarization, well, you know, using rubles and renminbi, that just works. The way it works is that there are what is called bilateral currency swaps. So this is the mechanism that allows central banks of Russia and China to do trade with each other directly. In the past, everything actually would go through the US dollar. So say you were a South African exporter and you wanted to do business with India. Well, essentially, you were going to do your invoice in US dollar because there were no direct ties between the central banks of South Africa and, and India. So these bilateral currency swaps mean that the infrastructure for trade to be conducted not in US dollars is working. Then the second thing, alternatives to SWIFT, well, they are working. China SIPs, you know, it works. Russian banks are connected to it. And at the same time, we know that it's very difficult to know what's really happening. And that's why it's dangerous, you know, because we have no oversight and no view about what's happening and the transactions really, really processed by SIPs. So we can't give a definitive answer, but it, it seems to be working rather well. And finally, central bank digital currencies, well, they also work. I was actually talking yesterday to um, a Chinese audience, and for them, it was completely normal to use the Chinese EUAN. So I think actually all of this taken together is, is fairly robust. Of course, it will be refined. Of course, for instance, at the moment, um, the Chinese digital currency, well, it can't be used for um, overseas transactions. But this is probably part of the Chinese strategy. Once there is a liberalization um, of the capital controls on the renminbi. So I would say that's the direction of travel. Perhaps not perfect at the moment, but definitely the direction of travel. So I would say three shots of a very effective vaccine. Okay. Or so, even four. So, okay. Okay. So, but <laughs> it sounds like you're saying, you know, doubters, doubters of these initiatives should, should take note. It, that these are, this isn't something to scoff at. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you know why? Because I think it is actually very worrying, not only for the effectiveness of sanctions, it is also very worrying for the fight against terror or nuclear proliferation, because we know that tracking, uh, well, terror groups or nuclear proliferation groups involves tracking financial activities. But if these groups have alternative financial systems that they can use to do business, because, you know, well, cash is king, but it's, it's, it's very tricky to just carry cash. They need access to banks. They need access to financial channels. And if they, they have these financial channels that Western countries cannot track at all, well, I think it will also have national security implications that, to me, are really huge. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. All right. I'm, I'm going to transition now, Agatha. I think we have our first live question. Uh, Piotr, I see you have your hand raised. Uh, what is your question? Uh, hi, Reid. Yeah, thanks for having me up. Uh, nice to see you again. So I'm going to be one of those pushbackers, if that's a word. Um, as it stands currently, SWIFT transacts about 42 million transactions a day versus SIPs, which is 13,000. So I guess I appreciate your perspective in terms of the eventuality of this happening, but do you not think it's going to take a long time, like a really long time? And in that time, we're going to have another issue, which is China's demographic situation. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, China's population decreased by 850,000 uh, last year, uh, which has surprised a lot of demographers like myself and other policy people because, you know, the idea was that Amer uh, China's economy would overtake America's. Uh, and, and that's now, now not going to happen for, as you said, quite a few years. So 
and and this demographic crisis, the demographic dividend was expected to run for a little bit longer than just, uh, you know, in early 2022 until early 2030s, ideally. So do you not think that these uh, unexpected and pr- pretty systemic uh, challenges that China's going to face are going to undermine its ability to to comprehensively uh, counterbalance against the United States with a financial system. So I think that you've asked the two main pushback questions that I usually get. So, well, thankfully, <laughs> I can I can reply to these. The first uh, part of your question essentially says that SIPS is far smaller than SWIFT, so maybe it's not that important. Well, I agree with you. In terms of the volume of transactions, it's about 100 times smaller. But China really doesn't care, you know. As long as it has an operational system, it doesn't want it to be as big as SWIFT. That's that's not the plan. The plan is to have a backup plan B. If you want to have a backup plan B, you don't need your system to be the leading one. Actually, I'm not even sure China wants that. I argue in the book um, Backfire that I wrote about sanctions that the likeliest scenario for the financial landscape in the coming decades is one of fragmentation. Um, so we would have a US-led block, maybe a Europe-led block, hopefully, as a European, I would say that, and a Chinese-led block. And this block, you know, maybe would have a a 30% market share each. And I think that's probably the direction of travel. Um, And I would think also that a Chinese financial channel will be appealing to some Asian countries that just do a lot of business to China. So that's the first bit. But really, far smaller than SWIFT, I completely agree, but that's not the problem for China. It wants the, the backup and the plan B. In terms of China's demographics, yes, absolutely. Um, China has a demographic problem. So I was actually taking a look at the data and at the Economist Intelligence Unit, where I am Global Forecasting Director, we run a long-term forecasting model. So we're doing economic forecasts until 2050. And the two main drivers of this economic model are demographics and long-term productivity growth. So China's population is decreasing, but it's still far, far higher than that of the US. So even if it is decreasing by 2050, I think that it is going to be about 1.3 billion people. So still really huge. And the second thing is productivity growth is actually high, higher than that of the US. So it is inevitable, unless there are big geopolitical shifts, it is inevitable that China will become the world's largest economy. Our models at the moment say that the crossover point will be in 2037. It may be two years earlier, two years later. That's not really the question. The direction of travel is very clear. The one thing that could change that is if we have big geopolitical events, such as China trying to annex Taiwan, um, Of course, that could change everything. But so far, when the models run, that's that's what they point to. Thanks a lot, Agath. Uh, Piotr, thanks again for for participating and asking the question. Um, Agath, I want to turn now. This is a question I've received this in in, in a few different forms, both from readers of the China and Eurasia newsletter and from followers on Twitter. And that's about dual-use technologies, especially things, computer chips, uh, infrared cameras, radar equipment, which can be bought as a commercial product, but then used militarily. And I'll, I'll make the caveat, Agath, um, you know, you are an economist and neither you or I are uh, experts on military equipment. Um, I think I should also mention that Chinese officials, um, you know, deny that they're 
supplying any kind of this aid to to, to Russia. Um, but this issue of dual use technologies, you know, it keeps popping up in the the wider debate about how much of an economic lifeline China is extending to Russia while it's still waging a war in Ukraine. Uh, the Wall Street Journal they recently ran a piece uh, looking at Russian trade and customs data, and they concluded that Chinese companies, both state owned and private. Uh, are the dominant exporters of dual-use goods to Russia in the last year. Um, And there were also exports coming from Turkey and the UAE. Um, So I'm curious, you know, as as someone who's an expert on sanctions, I mean, is this a surprising part of the story, a surprising element, or is this just unexpected part of this cat-and-mouse game um, where people and countries circumvent sanctions? Well, I think that's to be expected, you know, and I think what that points to is the fact that sanctions implementation and closing loopholes is probably going to be the big challenge in 2023 for Western countries. The way I see it, and I speak here as a former French Treasury official, is that drafting sanctions and imposing sanctions is, from my perspective, an iterative process. What I mean by that is that usually when you draft the sanctions, you do that in a rush to respond to an unfolding crisis. But afterwards, it is really, really critical to take some time, but it is much more time consuming, to close sanctions loopholes, to really fine tune the implementation, to really make sure, you know, that sanctions circumvention is very difficult. And in my mind, this is what is going to happen in 2023. I think there will be a number of challenges. The first one will actually be within the European Union, because at the moment, European sanctions legislation is adopted at the European level in Brussels, but it is implemented at the member state level. And so what that means is that there can be differences in the interpretation of sanctions law between various member states. You know, it's it's fair (laughs) because it is legal stuff. And so some people may have a different interpretation, a different view. So it will take some time to just harmonize everything. The second step, in my view, for this, um, well, closing loopholes is going to have more countries on board of the sanctions effort and also taking a look at some of the countries that, you know, it seems could be involved in sanctions circumvention. Um, I'm thinking of Turkey, I'm thinking of Serbia, and I'm thinking of China. And so, of course, that will take some time. But I will say that essentially, the main tool that Western countries have at their disposal, and the US in particular, would be the imposition of secondary sanctions on Russia. Because at the moment, there are no secondary sanctions on Russia except on the Russian military. And so just one word about what secondary sanctions are. Well, when the US imposes secondary sanctions, it is telling businesses all around the world, foreign or American, that they need to comply with US sanctions law. Otherwise, they could be put under sanctions themselves if they do business in the U.S. So essentially, that's that's the case for all multinationals. And so if the U.S. were to go down that route of secondary sanctions, I think that a number of companies would really think twice before engaging um, with Russia to do business. So maybe it will happen, maybe it will not happen. There will be other considerations for the U.S. to take into account because this would have a big impact on global energy markets. But I would say watch that space because I would expect some moves from Western countries in 2023. All right. Another big thing to keep an eye on. Uh, Piotr, you you raised your hand again. Do you have a follow-up question for Agatharai? 
Yes, I do. Uh, this is a terrific conversation. So uh, thank you very much for having it. Um, so back uh, about a year ago, I was speaking with Zoe Ziang Lu of um, uh, the CFR. And, and one of the things I posed to her was about the BRICS, because we're increasingly seeing the BRICS raised as a, as a potential alternative, you know, collective group of countries. And, and you've mentioned um, different sort of coalitions of countries. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, uh, I find that there's sometimes an over uh, over hypeness about this because india and china have very high security concerns the border skirmishes of 2020 and uh, and historical just you know tensions um so i'm just curious for your thoughts on you know the feasibility of seeing uh the the, the wide take up or uptake rather of these sorts of alternative systems um we've seen iran and russia get deeper together with the sharing of their banking uh, systems in the past couple of weeks. But to what extent do you think that this can continue to grow? Or do we think that it's not going to go as far as say, a Western-style model just because of some of the limited uh, relations which are more based on convenience than uh, ide- ideals and values, if that makes sense? Yes, sure. So I think this is one of the big questions. Just to be clear, are you referring to financial systems or economic partnerships more generally? Oh, that's a good distinction. Um, I think for the time being, maybe if we start with, I'd love your opinion on both, because uh, so gave, but I'd love to hear your, your We're really getting our money's worth here with you, I guess. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. So essentially, the way I would phrase things is that it was always to be expected that BRICS countries and emerging countries in general would want to have their own financial and economic systems. And I think, you know, it makes sense as they develop that they would want to say, okay, we don't want to rely anymore on Western-led and US-led in particular financial systems. So I think this was always to be expected. And we've actually seen a number of declarations at the BRICS country summit in that sense. So I don't think that this was to be a surprise, um, you know, and I think this is perfectly understandable. Then I would say that a number of events are accelerating this phenomenon. Um, I think the war in Ukraine in particular is certainly accelerating this phenomenon and this fragmentation of the global geopolitical landscape. If you think about it, I think that we have have three blocks at the moment in the geopolitical sphere. We have a US-led, Western-led block that is very well defined, and we have a Chinese-led with its Russian ally, um, if you want to call it that way, or junior partner, very junior partner, I would say. Uh, That's the second block. And then there is a third block of non-aligned countries yet. And the big question is, where will they align? And actually, some of the BRICS countries are part of this block. Uh, Brazil, of course, India also, whose relationship with Russia is very, very tricky to decipher. Um, And South Africa also. So I think that it will be very interesting to take a look at what's happening um, in that sphere. And finally, about the fact that they could have broader economic partnerships. Well, I think that's also the direction of travel. We're seeing more regional trade agreements, um, we're, but all around the world, not only between BRICS. We're seeing more, yes, more bespoke trade, currency, financial, everything agreements. Um, so instead of having global multinational multilateral institutions i think these days we're seeing more regional institutions more bespoke such institutions so again i think it is to be expected that the BRICS will want to have their own um institutions but yeah that's that's a big question 
um, and, and certainly something that we'll watch carefully in the coming years. Thanks a lot, Agath. And thanks, Piotr, for your question. Um, I see we have another one here from Raffaello Pantucci. Uh, Raffaello, um, what's on your mind? Let us know. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me into the cool uh, read. It's a really fascinating um, discussion. I had a, well, first I actually had a comment on, on the last uh, point I just, uh, that was just discussed about these alternative structures in the BRICS in particular. Of course, the BRICS New Development Bank has been around for a while, and I don't know that it's done a huge amount. And the SCO has been talking really since 2005 or six about creating a development bank. And as far as I can tell, it's gone absolutely nowhere. So I'm waiting to see a bit how much these things land, though I accept the AIB, for example, has clearly developed and created a very interesting kind of new structure, but it's one that actually the West is still very engaged with. So, you know, I think I think I have to wait and see a little bit if these alternative structures are really going to come into fruition, because there still seems some, some hesitation about the moment. But my question actually was more specific. And I was it's a it's it's really going back to the kind of the question around China. And, you know, I think I can make a very compelling case about um, uh, about uh, a lot of the structures and uh, methods that China will use and, and how this will sort of increase influence in the future. But I wonder how much where in your considerations does the sort of the party fit? And I say that in the sense that China often makes some decisions um, that impact the economy in a pretty substantial way that don't seem to have much economic logic to them, but are driven by party logic. Um, and I wonder how you think that is going to play out in the longer term, um, how much it will actually stop China really wanting its currency to go completely global, because I suppose if it does, then there's a concern they'll lose control and what impact might that have at home. Um, or in other ways, when in terms of sort of pushing their companies out into the world and abruptly deciding that the leadership is sort of politically unpalatable and sort of pulling them back. So I just think there's there's an interesting question there for me, which I always have wondered a bit about, which is how much do we think that the party is actually going to make decisions at home that are going to go against the sort of economic logic um, that would make logical sense <laughs> because there is a sort of logic within the party of actually defending them or protecting them or maintaining control in some sort of way? Yeah, that's that's really interesting, Raf. I mean, I think especially in light of, you know, the crackdown we've seen, you know, on Jack Ma, Alibaba, the the wider sort of purge across the Chinese tech space. So, Agatha, uh, I'm quite curious, you know, how how do you see that? Well, I think that there is a parallel to be made with zero COVID. You know, some decisions from the zero COVID uh, policies are imposed by the leadership that were certainly detrimental to Chinese firms. I think there are a number of things. I'm not sure I have the answer to that question. I think, um, Rafael, just like you, this is a question that I've been pondering. But I think there are some things to consider. I think the first one in terms of the China-Russia relationship, we haven't seen actually Chinese companies go in droves to the Russian market. And to me, what this shows is that there hasn't been any instruction from the Chinese leadership to go to Russia and to invest uh, in the Russian market. So I think this is... This is first something that to me is really interesting. It, it's also due to the fact that the Russian market is not really attractive at the moment for Chinese firms. But this is certainly at odds with the declarations from the Chinese leadership of the no limit partnership, etc., etc. And to me, what this shows is that, you know, at the end of the day, the decisions that are made to do business with Russia are also down to Chinese companies. I think we shouldn't assume that the Chinese Communist Party is controlling everything down to the decisions of Chinese SMEs working cross-border with Russia. And to me, that's that's um, the first one, the first point that is to me really interesting. 
Then about the crackdown on Jack Ma, etc., etc. Well, I think actually I am of the view what, that what this means is that China is increasingly bolder in its decisions and increasingly confident that it can do as it wishes, pretty much. And I think this is down to growing economic clout and growing economist economic confidence. And in a few decades, I wouldn't be surprised if, going back to what I said about Chinese financial channels, China says, well, to do business with us, you need to use SIPs. And I think that, you know, for a number of companies, that won't really be a choice. They will just do it because they can't afford to lose access to the second largest or largest economy in the world in a few decades and a big market of 1.4 billion people. So I think that actually the Chinese leadership is becoming bolder and bolder, which to me is a worry around Taiwan. Um, But certainly we're still seeing a disconnect between the decisions of the communist leadership and sometimes uh, what Chinese firms would like to happen. I'm not sure there will ever be a solution to this or that this this gap will ever be bridged um but yeah i mean that's that's also a question that i that i'm asking myself so i'm not sure i i answered your question but at least i i shared a few thoughts uh from my perspective on it uh thanks a lot i got rafael i see you have your hand open uh, hand up and I'll, I'll go to you just one second but i just wanted to to, to pivot off that Agath, because you know you're talking a lot about you know a growing a boldness from the chinese side um and i think that that's quite interesting because i think there is a little bit you know in the maybe china watching community at the moment some debate okay how how confident is china really feeling you know in its position vis-a-vis Europe or the United States, and especially as it's sort of you know reemerging out of out of zero COVID and all of these things, and um, you know I, to come back to your book, I mean I think this is something that you know you you mentioned Taiwan just in your in your last answer, and I know in your book you know you talk about okay how would a sanctions response look to say if China did try to use force to annex Taiwan, um, you know. Could we see a response uh, similar to what we saw from the West in regards to Russia and Ukraine? Or, uh, I mean, I know the answer to this because I read your book, but I'm hoping that you can explain more to, to listeners about, uh, you know, what, what you think that would look like and, you know, perhaps where sanctions factor in and what their limits are. Well, I think that U.S. sanctions in the case of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would be completely ineffective, um, financial sanctions. I don't think that the U.S. can use sanctions against China, um, at least in the way that it uses sanctions at the moment against Russia. Um, I think that essentially if we take a look at the, well, every sanction available pretty much would have big global repercussions in such a large economy as China. So I think that the U.S. wouldn't go down that route. And that actually explains why the U.S. is resorting to export controls at the moment to slow down the advances of the Chinese military, including regarding Taiwan, because semiconductors are tiny electronic components presenting every electronic stuff that we use. We're talking through mobile phones, laptops, um, webcams, but also actually there are semiconductors in rice cookers and pacemakers. And these components are also used in military equipment. And the country that has the best semiconductors will have the best military gear. At the moment, the US controls 
advanced semiconductor technology, but it knows that China is making advances in that field. And so the U.S. is curbing, clamping down on China's ability to get access to the best semiconductor technology in a bid to slow down the advances of China's military. So I think this is this is a key thing um, to keep in mind. But the problem is, and that's the point that I make in the book, the problem is, in my view, is that um, I don't know if these export controls are the solution. What I do know is that we need to have a think about the way China is going to react to them. Maybe export controls are the right way to go. But I think we need to factor in the fact that it means that China is going to double down on trying to have the best semiconductors. Um, When we take a look at public investment in the microchip field, China's investments are 30 times, 30, 30, higher than US investments, even after the CHIPS Act. So that means inevitably that China is going to make progress in that field. And to me, that means that possibly the decoupling narrative, the export controls um, will be self-defeating. And the second thing is that this is all tied to the decoupling narrative. But in a decoupled world, we could very well see China tell American semiconductor companies that they can't do business in China anymore. You know, I think that would be retaliation from China. Um, That would be very likely. And in such a case, well, it would mean that American semiconductor firms would lose access to a key market. They would lose some revenues and they would struggle to finance RNG expenses. Those RNG expenses are critical for them to remain ahead of the game in the semiconductor field. And so gradually that would play into China's hands. And actually there has been an example of this happening in the past with mobile phones. 20 years ago, the biggest and most advanced brands of mobile phones, cell phones, were American, such as Motorola or Lucent. But what happened is that China started to flood the market for mobile phones with cheap mobile phones. So U.S. companies saw a drop in their market share. They were unable to finance as much R&D as they used to. And gradually, they became smaller and smaller and less advanced. And they were eventually bought. And today, there are no big um, cell phone makers in the U.S. And that you know, we could have a repeat scenario of this with semiconductors. So again, I'm, I'm not saying export controls are not the solution, but I think we need to have a think about the ripple effects and their side effects. So exactly the same as the antibiotics parallel that I was making a few minutes ago. Right, right. Thank you. Uh, Raffaello, you, you wanted to, to chime in with a, a follow-up. Um, to be honest, the discussion has slightly moved on, um, so I, I don't I don't want to uh, sort of drag it backwards. But I'd maybe instead um, ask a, a question about um, uh, more specifically about sanctions and the sort of uh, impact they're having. And I guess uh, the question for me is how much you know have you seen? Do you think Chinese companies? Because I know that there's been a few big Chinese companies that have moved their offices from. Uh, Russia to um, Central Asia and set up shop there, uh, seemingly to sort of, I don't know, avoid sanctions and I assume continue to trade into the country. So I'm wondering how much of that movement you've actually seen and how much you're seeing sort of Chinese companies actually uh, taking advantage of other routes to sort of continue to get products in. I know there's been stories about 
uh, about sort of dual use technologies in particular. Um, but I'm wondering how, how much wider that sort of goes into the Russian economy increasing and how much we think that's actually going to start to really undermine uh, uh, the Russian economy um, in terms of its own ability to develop its own indigenous sort of manufacturing in, in certain areas. Oh, that's super interesting, actually. I had never heard the argument in that sense, you know, that it could uh, be detrimental to the Russian economy. Um, I like that one. I think, um, essentially, the real answer and the honest answer is it's very, very hard to know uh, because a lot of things are happening in, in very murky worlds, so it's very hard to know. What I believe, however, is that, you know, we so circumvention of sanctions for a long, long time with, say, Belarus or North Korea or Cuba. But these are really small economies. And I am very, very doubtful that, well, smuggling routes or sanctions circumvention will really help Russia to circumvent sanctions because of the sheer size of the Russian economy. We're, you know, ninth largest economy in the world. So if we have a think about the number of semiconductors and the number of spare parts, because sanctions are also restricting the ability of Russia to get access to car parts, plane parts, well, every part manufactured in Western countries, well, it would need a lot of smuggling routes and a lot of sanctions circumvention. And that would be very, very hard to keep all of this under the radar for Russia to be able to completely bypass um, sanctions. So I am very skeptical that Russia is going to manage to do that. And I think we also need to take into account the fact that Russia is not an attractive market at the moment for a number of companies to do business there. It was in a recession last year, this year, probably a recession at best a stagnation so really not a great environment to operate in intellectual property uh, isn't protected anymore under international regulations in russia the, the kremlin just ditched all of this so i don't i don't think that companies will say okay let's let's go to to russia this is the new place to do business i'm i'm very skeptical of this Thanks a lot, Agath. Um, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Samuel, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? No? Okay, that seems like a no from, from Sam. Okay, here's Samuel. Uh, Samuel, the, the floor is yours. Um, well, happy to hear what you have to say. Hi, thank you very much. I just have a, a question for Agatha based on what you said before. If we follow your hypothesis or logic, about um, it not being worth to decouple uh, China and, uh, and the rest of the world or, or, or the U.S. and so forth. Um, doesn't it, doesn't it, isn't it self-defeating in the sense that uh, if, if uh, Western companies lose Chinese market access, uh, for example, in the microchip sector, uh, in the eventual case of decoupling, wouldn't Chinese companies equally also lose market access in the opposite direction? And let's just imagine that, indeed, the Chinese government is willing to uh, prop up investment for them, um, subsidies and whatnot. Uh, would the U.S. and, and other, uh, other, uh, uh, other governments in the uh, opposite pole of China also not simply do the same? Um, I'm considering here the fact that the U.S. continues being uh, the power that invests far, far larger amounts of money into military and defense despite not it being at par with uh, China in, the, in microchips at the moment, uh, surely uh, that capability could occur. So I'm just trying to understand the, the extremities of that logic that you're, uh, you're pursuing. Thank you very much. 
Thanks a lot. So the first thing I really need to make clear is I am not pro or against decoupling. Um, really, my view is that maybe it is the solution. Maybe it is the answer. I don't know. But I think we need to have a think about the side effects. Um, I think there are two things to consider to answer your question. The first one is that the manufacturing power of the world is China. It's not the U.S., um, and so demand for semiconductors is actually much higher in China than in the U.S., just because China is manufacturing the laptops that we use, the screens that we use, uh, the mobile phones that we use, everything that we use. Actually, China imports more semiconductors every year than it imports oil. Um, so, well, yes, Chinese companies would lose access to the U.S. market, but I'm not sure they would care much uh, in terms of sales because what they need is U.S. technology. The U.S. doesn't manufacture semiconductors. Semiconductors are not manufactured anywhere on U.S. soil at the moment. Um, so, and, and, of course, Chinese companies have lost access to American technology. So I think that the consequences of American companies losing access to the Chinese markets because they control the technology and then the semiconductors are uh, manufactured mostly uh, in Taiwan and South Korea. I think that would that would have a far bigger impact um, on the U.S. And the second thing is that the Chinese economic model is completely different from the U.S. economic model. And even with the latest announcements from the U.S. putting a big, big, big emphasis on, on shoring, relocating production um, onshore on U.S. soil, we're seeing that the amounts at stake are 30 times lower in the U.S. than in China, you know, so... I think that the U.S. simply doesn't have the capacity because of its economic model and its own issues and challenges to match the amount of financing from China. So, of course, a lot of China's financing is going to go to waste. <laughs> we know that there are a lot of scandals about some semiconductor firms in China, corruption, of course. But even if only a fraction of this financing is used, well, I think that it will still put China in a good position to catch up with American technology and eventually maybe become the most advanced country in the semiconductor field. And, and to me, that that is a real worry. Thanks a lot, Agatha. That's, that's very fascinating. And uh, unfortunately, everybody, we're going to have to end this conversation here. Um, uh, so apologies if we, you had a question and we don't have time to get to it. Um, Agath, thank you so much for your time and uh, for answering all the questions and for letting everybody pick your brain. Uh, it's been a pleasure and thanks for joining everyone. This conversation uh, is available on Radio for Europe's site and you can also subscribe to Talking China in Eurasia and other Radio for Europe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or wherever else you like to listen. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my China in Eurasia newsletter, which comes out every other Wednesday. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks, and until then, I'm Reed Standish.